0: Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors.
1: Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is Mike Packer, a partner at QED Investors a boutique venture capital firm focused on the fast-growing fintech sector. QED was co-founded by Frank Rotman and Nigel Morris, who himself was one of the co-founders of Capital One. And QED has taken a similar data-centric strategic approach to its investing in the next generation of financial services disruptors. With more than $3 billion under management, QED invests in the U.S. and U.K., but also has a growing presence in Latin America and other emerging markets in Asia and Africa. It has backed well-known fintech players and unicorns, including Credit Karma, SoFi, NewBank, and Remitly. Like QED founders, as well as partners, Packer has a background in financial services, at Capital One as it happens, where he spent 10 years in a variety of roles, including running small business lending. It's that kind of operational experience that QED believes gives it a distinct advantage in choosing its investments and taking an active role in helping them succeed. Underlying the firm's philosophy is a belief it can help fintech startups increase their odds of success by reducing the number of contingent probabilities or dependencies involved in the business plan. In other words, helping to simplify it. QED calls this fighting the tyranny of 0.8 to the 5th, or power of 5. And yes, it confused the heck out of me when I first heard the term. In any case, Mike Packer explains that, along with lots of other stuff about investing and state of fintech in our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us briefly about your career journey and what has driven your interest in VC investing, but particularly FinTech?
0: I studied engineering in college and became a little obsessed with the fact of analyzing data coming from experiments. Using data to create analysis to find the answer was a very infectious thing for me. I ended up starting my career at Capital One. The company had a huge emphasis on testing and learning and database strategies. I ended up there for 10 years, and it was a pretty uh, great experience from a number of angles. But being in the middle of financial services through the Great Recession uh, and through uh, a lot of the digital opportunities that started emerging in the 2010s, open my eyes to change and innovation in financial services. I really just wanted to be on the other side of the table with the startups that I was hearing about and the innovation that I was seeing. The move into VC was gradual. I called my uh, friends at QED and said, Hey, this is fascinating what you guys are doing. Who should I talk to you? What's interesting. And that conversation was six plus months. And eventually they said, hey, why don't you just come over here? And I scrambled and said, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. After a year or so within QED, I started getting involved in the investing side. But to answer the question about why investing is interesting to me, I get to see so many different opportunities and work with so many amazing people. It's just very energizing. And to be able to connect the dots, be part of some of these journeys
1: is something that I've fallen in love with. Tell us a little bit more about QED and its evolution from a fintech operator to an investor today. QED has been around for 15 years, and uh, has made over 200 investments.
0: We're now a team of 20 plus investing globally with over $4.5 billion uh, under management. And this started from an idea of our founder Nigel Morris and co-founder Frank Rotman of applying their experience as entrepreneurs and what was building Capital One, and then passing that on to the next generation of entrepreneurs. Nigel was one of the co-founders of Capital One. So it began as a really intellectual experiment. The idea of trying to help early stage companies using decades of operating experience was in the DNA before QED started. One of the early founding partners, Caribou Honig, said that we were just operators masquerading as investors. The idea was, if you understand the way these businesses work, what makes them move? What are the vectors? What are the risks? Then you can understand how to invest in it. We always focused on that bottoms
1: up view and we still do today. I just want to ask you a little bit about the QED philosophy, which is helping entrepreneurs fight the tyranny of 0. 0.8 to the power of five. Can you explain this a little and how you live this every day in you're investing? Even if you
0: get the market right, the entrepreneur right, you've got a product that works, there's a lot that has to go right to get there even if you get the best market the best team the idea of 0.8 to the power of fifth is that you can usually narrow down four or five major uh, decisions getting from a company that has a product and idea to a real company and those four or five things even if you are best prepared have a 80 percent likelihood of happening if those things are contingent or sequenced then the probability of you getting all five right and getting to the outcome is less than a third chance to do that, 0.8 to the power five. We try to use that framework in two ways. One, clarifying that there are probabilities along the way. How do we help entrepreneurs identify those? The second piece, how do we help improve those odds? And that's the way we were trying to underwrite our investments. I mean, we're not clairvoyance or even my partner, Frank, maybe notwithstanding geniuses, we don't have all of the answers, but we have seen things through now 200 companies. We think that we're able to work with entrepreneurs to increase the probabilities and make them less reliant on each other. That idea is a very mathematical way of us saying, if we're investing in a company that's worth 10 million, 50 million, a hundred million dollars, how do we increase the likelihood that it's gonna be worth a billion or 10 billion in five or 10
1: years? To a certain degree, it feels a little like trying to help simplify the complexity of those odds and what needs to happen for success to eventually occur. Is your sense that too many startups overlook this challenge and are overly complex in terms of contingent probabilities? Is it a common pitfall at the beginning? Yes is the short answer. The natural inclination
0: of most ambitious, excited, passionate entrepreneurs is to do everything as quickly as they can and do it yesterday and do more. There is an inherent push from particularly the type of startups that we're investing in the other way. One of the things we look for in founders at QED, do they understand what they're building now and how that's gonna help them next? They understand how to get the right amount of data to be able to go and launch the next product or launch the next market and then be able to true back Uh, if necessary. It's also a bit of analytical uh, exercise of, let's break this into its parts. And if we can put it back together, does it look the same way you want it to look? Because without a doubt, everything that's worth building will be complex.
1: It's just a matter of how you get there. When you talk to founders that you're considering investing in, are you able to get a sense from them the extent to which your guys' philosophies will match or not in terms of the whole approach on contingent probabilities? But it's not an explicit process, and each partner is approaching their relationships with founders
0: in a different way. It's something that we more often than not get a pretty good feel for. We're known for asking hard questions and not being shy about uh, going into levels of detail. How founders respond to those interactions is a pretty key way of establishing the working relationship, the roadmap conversation or the financial model assumption conversation. are less about the numbers in cell C33, but how the founders think. In the 2021 days where deals were happening very fast and a lot of things over Zoom, I personally found it harder to evaluate these things. When you spend the time with the founders, it's very clear how one-sided or two-sided that road is. And of course, we're always looking for two-sided. We want to be there to help you as much as you're going to help us. And it's not because we have all the answers, but it's because we want to be
1: in it together. We want to build that level of trust over a long time, up to a decade. And once you're working with a founder, is it something that can cause tension in terms of having consensus on the approach? It can be challenging.
0: Tension is good in a lot of these things. It's not like I'm going to a board meeting with the 10 slide presentation to (laughs) describe the contingent probabilities and how I want them to change. It's a little less formulaic than that. We try to make our voices heard. At the end of the day, especially at the early stages, we're backing founders that we're expecting to do great things. And while there are certain things we do have a little bit more, quote unquote, control over, we are along for the journey and the ride. As long as we have some of that tension, we're making our voice heard and we're thinking that it's feeling additive to the relationship and the conversation, that can still be a good outcome. We're certainly uh, not right all the time. Some of that tension is good and very welcome from a lot of entrepreneurs because they're getting feedback. It's much more, hey, I'm in this with you. And again, I think one of the things that gets me most excited
1: is to really be somewhat part of it. It's just like a a marriage. With fintech in particular, how challenging is it in terms of simplifying and reducing these probabilities are fighting the tyranny of 0.8 to the power of five. FinTech is incredibly complicated. You've got product
0: challenges, operational challenges, marketing distribution challenges. You have uh, capital, not only the equity that we invest, but a lot of our companies that are lending have debt extremely early on. You also have regulation. I would say a far majority of our investments are regulated uh, by some, some form of financial regulation, right? depending on the business that they're in. And every one of those, you have a tree of additional challenges. And so when it comes to capital markets, debt, particularly you know, building a balance sheet over time, those are things that we've had an advantage on seeing through different lenses. We really can change the outcomes there. You know, a lot of our companies ask us to get heavily involved through things like risk committees and uh, credit committees. Specific to fintech is regulation. This one's a lot harder to change outcomes to just kind of advise companies to make sure that they're clear on what they're, what they're doing and what risks they're taking. And there's actually a huge amount of uh, advantage that can come, come from just that framing. I think the regulation and capital make it particularly difficult and important to try to increase the
1: probabilities of success. In some respects, I'd imagine regulation as being almost the ultimate dependency or contingent probability, you're dependent on those regulators giving you a stamp of approval, right? Totally.
0: If you're waiting for them to give you the stamp of approval, or the first time you hear from them is when they have a question about you, that's the bad sign.
1: Emerging markets is a major focus of QED. Can you talk a little bit about the strategic decision-making behind the focus and expansion in Latin America in terms of FinTech? I'm currently leading.
0: Our LATAM investments. I've been looking at that market for the last seven years. We made our first investment in Brazil in 2015. New Bank was the company. It was, by the way, before my time. So well done to my partners. But that investment was um, more about the investment than it was about entering Latin America. New Bank was interesting because it had a lot of commonalities with Capital One. Um, in terms of launching a credit card to take on incumbents uh, in a large market, it was interesting to the new bank team for the same reason they wanted to see what they could learn and I think the exercise of making the investment was twofold. How interesting is this market? Can we actually help? Taking a look at Brazil banking in 2015, it looked like there was some ripeness for disruption, just given the concentration and the high returns the lack of investment in technology. And so the investment case in Brazil started to form quite quickly, looking at that investment. And the second one, we took a little bit more of a flyer. Very quickly, uh, we realized that we were quite helpful and that the advice we were offering, building an organization, how to focus on uh, product development, focusing on unit economics, credit risk management, financial management, these are all areas of the company that we were fortunate to be a part of and help. So once we figured out that we were helpful, we started to lean in a little bit more. It was a longer decision. That investment was 2015. We launched our first LatAm focused fund in 2017. It was a pretty small vehicle um, at the time. It was a bit of a test. Once we got into 2018, 2019, something like a quarter of our investment activity was in Latin America. For us, once we got there, we were constantly asking the question about how exciting is this market? What are the conditions that make it exciting? What's the ecosystem look like in terms of talent? Will companies be able to raise the right amount of capital? And you know, how do we exit? We started to get better data points. And again, part of this was being on the journey with Bank as they started being more and more successful. And then we just decided that this is something that we need to focus on. And I got to
1: really ride the coattails there early on, uh, which was amazing. In addition to the talent what were a couple of the most important characteristics or variables in the market that made it so attractive the market case was the
0: under penetration of financial services high return on equity in the banking sector very fast digital penetration in terms of smartphone penetration you know, mobile first generation was large and growing all of that was there and then for us was something about how big the tech market could be and how big the fintech market specifically for us but tech was and still is extremely small part
1: of the market across latin america and are there still structural challenges in the region that you spend a lot of time working with your founders on to overcome yes in each country there are different
0: volatility and shocks and things going on at any given time as a region Just having to invest in dollars and get returns in dollars carries a lot of risk to the local economies. From a tech infrastructure perspective, we're seeing that start to develop and enable a lot more companies to launch faster, do things easier. I think that's been extremely exciting to look at. From a regulatory infrastructure perspective, Brazil has been uh, extremely progressive and pushing innovation. There's a lot of things we're seeing movement on. The biggest structural challenges are more the macro when it comes to moving money in and out of the countries, the exposure to FX or other macro shocks that can
1: happen in these economies. And I know other emerging markets are a focus for QED. You guys just announced your first investment in Africa over the summer. India is a big focus too. Can you just talk briefly about what you're seeing in those markets in terms of fintech growth and What's making them so attractive? We are seeing a lot of activity there. Uh,
0: To some extent, I think it's because things are just getting started. And probably also because we've been pretty vocal about our entry. (laughs) We're getting a lot of activity, which has been amazing for us. So India, the growth there um, was something that really had us wanting to take a look. And the fact that certain areas of fintech hadn't been touched uh, was extremely attractive to us. And also in the middle of a mobile revolution, in terms of getting phones into the population, getting data access and extreme changes over the past decade or so. Also similar to uh, Brazil, in India, we saw a favorable regulatory uh, regime, uh, one that was engaging with the innovators and that was trying to create clearer rules that had implemented um, a few major initiatives, uh, UPI uh, being a big one in the payment space, that mixed with uh, creating good opportunities. And then lastly, it goes without saying, but the talent, we knew there was just an enormous talent base there and we had uh, some network into. So those are really the things that got us into India. Africa was less defined because the market's even more emerging, if you will. The first thing was we, we had started to see more opportunities and talking to other emerging market investors who were starting to get active. And so we were scratching our heads saying, how do we look at this market? And we never had the time to do any real research. And we just kept the conversations open, eventually hired a, a amazing partner, um, Benga, uh, who's been with us since the end of last year, and kind of said, Hey, we got to go figure this out together. Where do we focus first? Which countries, which markets? How do you value companies in Africa? What's the exit potential? How's the local ecosystem going to develop? We're trying to be at the forefront of some of these things uh, right now. We announced uh, Team Apt, which is uh, Amazing investment out of Nigeria, a company that's growing uh, extremely well, has a uh, very inspirational CEO um, who I, I got the chance to meet uh, in person last week
1: for the first time. And uh, just an amazing story that we're very proud to be part of. Let's talk a little broadly about trends in investing in fintech. Do you guys have a framing where you have different categories within fintech, or is it not that easily segmentable? When you started segmenting fintech, when I joined in
0: 2016, people were like, why are you segmenting fintech? Like, what are you doing? So yes, is the short answer. I mean, I'm not going to get a holistic view for you. Payments, lending are two major categories. We try to break down the subcategories, wealth management, wealth tech is something else. You mentioned infrastructure. So everything kind of back end that's enabling fintech and financial services. From marketing and distribution, all the way to core banking and everything between. We very much try to look at those things. We've been more and more including tech as part of FinTech. I think it's an interesting segment. We're starting to do some more work in. And then we've always adopted PropTech as a close cousin as well, as when you're dealing with uh, real estate, it's kind of a major financial transaction. And so all the innovation that goes behind taking the friction out is something that we focused on. We certainly haven't quite figured it out, but We do try to segment it. We try to be thematic and hypothesis-based where we can, at the same time uh, trying to keep ourselves uh, opportunistic when things come up.
1: And when you look at the sector right now, are there particular reasons for caution or uh, alternatively things that um, make you even more excited about the future?
0: Well, the biggest thing going on in venture right now is – inflation and cost of capital. With a risk of overplaying, it is the biggest thing in terms of investments right now, both in terms of making new investments, but also within our portfolios. There's a bit of a lens of making sure that we have something that's inflation-proof or less capital-intensive or taking some of those probabilities off the table. So in a rising rate environment, a lot of our companies are lenders. Their cost of raw material basically is going up right? We're re-looking at all of those you know, models and businesses right now. That's certainly a huge, huge challenge. The other thing I think that is hard is fintech stocks, public stocks are down uh, pretty extensively. At one point, everything was down 70, 80%, depending on the index or specific stock you were looking at. The market is questioning the business models, questioning the, the health of these businesses that have gone public and their ability to create free cash flow in the long term, there's been a reset that's happened there. And so for us, that's a pretty big challenge for the sector as a whole. What we still have really high conviction on and continue to advise um, founders in our portfolio, but also founders that we talk to is if you have healthy unit economics, uh, healthy margins, to some extent, your payback periods are predictable in terms of what your spending capital and your return on investment is. If you can start to build that customer base, whether it's consumers and consumer product or enterprise uh, software or small businesses, if you can build that base from the bottom up with the appropriate product and economics, then what you're gonna be with at the end of the day is something you really like and something that should be investable. You need to worry a little bit more about liquidity. You need to worry a little bit more about investing uh, capital. If you're not profitable yet, those are very, very real concerns, but positive unit economic businesses are going to be investable no matter
1: what the cost of capital is. So that's where we continue to try to focus. I just want to ask about embedded finance within fintech. People talk about it a lot. I think it spawned the idea that every company eventually being a fintech company. How do you guys view embedded finance as an opportunity and the notion that every company will eventually be a fintech company? To be a little provocative on the other side, I don't think every company is gonna be a FinTech
0: company. There are a lot of companies trying. I think that's really exciting. We're getting a lot of pitches where we stop in the middle and we say, hey, do you know that we're FinTech investors? it is a version of the trend where businesses are starting to be built and they realize that a company might be able to strengthen the value proposition through fintech it is a little funny to get a seed stage company wanting us to join a board where we're not going to really make a, a huge impact right away but on the flip side this is happening in the market we love the view of the market it gives us it's a testament to the brand that we've built within fintech so generally it's all very good but the embedded fintech trend it is real. Something's happening. It looks really exciting from two angles. One is the joking angle that we just described, which is a company that maybe does some other type of transaction and realizes that it's best positioned to offer a fintech solution. And oh, by the way, it's a real enabler of the business. But these would be companies that are benefiting from embedded fintech. And we invested in uh, Kavak, which is a used car. Uh, marketplace. It was in Mexico at the time, but now it's Latin America and a few other countries. They were just selling cars. Uh, But the idea was, we're going to need our own lending product. If nothing else, we're going to need a finance department to be able to bring in loans from other places. That really made the value proposition go in terms of being able to get the right access to cars. And now they have an entire CAVAC Capital division. They've built their own proprietary models. They have better data and operations than anyone in the industry because they have so much data about car sales. They understand logistics, they understand how to track and maintain cars. And all of this helps with kind of building a lending business. That's the type of thing that we do really like. The other angle of embedded is who's doing the enabling, so building financial infrastructure. This is one I think it's been a little bit harder to figure out who's gonna win and which subsectors are gonna be interesting. Is it an embedded lending company, an embedded payments company? Is it data and APIs? Uh, There's just so many things going here. And we've made a few investments in the space, Treasury Prime, which is helping open bank accounts, Fidel which is helping with payments and rewards. A company in Mexico called Calto, which is trying to enable B2B payments uh, between businesses. And so we've made a few bets and we're pretty excited about them.
1: I just want to look ahead a little towards the end of the decade. Where do you see QED by then? and, And how different do you think FinTech might be? FinTech is just getting started. There are lots of ways that, but
0: in 10 years, maybe a little fast, but I think you're going to see All the friction in financial services just completely getting to a road. I mean, I don't know the last time you went to your your bank branch, Daniel, but I view a world where um, that continues to happen. Things get uh, better, faster, uh, cheaper, and more ubiquitous. I think about the amount of market cap that um, banks and financial services have and the amount of profits that they have. There's clearly um, always a need uh, for financial products, some of which probably should be Um, And maybe are uh, commoditized. some of the other things that get us really excited about in emerging markets is the amount of penetration that you can get and hopefully really helping people's lives. Less friction, uh, cheaper,
1: faster, and more access are probably the four vectors that I'm most excited about. With your guys' focus on emerging markets, the impact of fintech advances, it's an even bigger uh, sea change for the economies um, in those regions and the daily lives of people. I think that's exactly right. I spend time in the small business
0: space. You're really talking about how do you keep a family business growing at a small scale in Mexico or Brazil. It's something that's all been pen and paper offline. And so the idea of getting data and information and financial services to help um, these things is very exciting and something I think our portfolio can make a big difference
1: in. And uh, that brings it all back to your interest in data from uh, your time as an engineer. So... Uh... It takes us full circle. Mike, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks, as always, to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Nell. And, of course, thank you for listening.
0: This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the
1: challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.